Hello, and welcome to Life with Ed, the podcast. I'm Julia Wirth, your host, a registered dietitian here in New Haven, Connecticut. And happy Father's Day, everyone. I hope you had a great weekend, um, celebrated with your dad or grandfather or uncle or whatever, um, but at least enjoyed the day. I just wanted to do a special shout out to my dad because he was a huge part of my recovery from um, an eating disorder. I think that most people who have an eating disorder, there is someone who, you know, is really um, triggering with them when they're eating. Uh, It's common. And that's why at um, an eating disorder residential facility, they'll often have something called like a challenge meal or family meals. And they have, you know, your parents actually come in and eat with you because that, you know, meal structure and that environment is really stressful. And um, I just got to say, my dad put up with a whole lot, a lot of me being upset, getting angry, critiquing him on his eating when it was really Ed talking. But um, as a parent, it's definitely hard to separate that. So definitely a big shout out to my dad for putting up uh, and helping me, not just putting up with it, <laughs> but helping me through all those those years that were really hard um, with Ed at the dinner table with us. So uh, just so you guys remember, if you aren't interested in following me on social media, on Instagram, it's at JBWorth. And on Facebook, you can find me at Worth Your While Nutrition, or of course, my website, worthyourwhile.com. And if you can, if you have time, please rate and review this podcast. That's the best way for other listeners to find me and for us to keep spreading the word about eating disorders and what life with Ed is really like. So as I promised last time, we're going to start or, you know, start sort of, I already started, um, but start now with a news item. So this week, uh, my friends, well, it might have been last week, but he actually sent me this article and it was from Eyewitness News 3 and it's all about suicide rates. So um, suicide is often linked uh, with mental illness, often depression, but also eating disorders and uh, other mental illnesses. So suicide rates in girls are rising, especially in the age range of 10 to 14 is what the article is saying. And for decades, it's always been boys who commit suicide more frequently than girls. And uh, girls tend to attempt suicide more often, but more boys actually commit suicide. And this study, which uh, uses data from 1975 to 2016 with children aging from 10 to 19, showed that um, although 80% of those children who committed suicide were boys, by the end of that time frame, you know, girls were rapidly catching up. Um, And it's concerning because what it's showing is that girls are picking more lethal methods um, that actually cause them to commit suicide than a lot of the attempts that were previously happening. So it's something a lot of people in the mental health community are keeping their eyes on. And it's important for us as um, mental health allies and advocates to remember, even though, you know, you can often get stuck in the mental illness you have or the issue you have, whether it's an eating disorder, as I talk about a lot, or um, depression, if that's what has been going on in your family or whatever it is. It's important to remember the other ones out there and that we need to support each other and help each other, um, you know, find solutions so that this doesn't keep happening. So for all my parents and, you know, siblings and uh, caregivers who are listening, if you have a child between 10 and 19, the CDC really recommends, you know, just looking for those drastic changes in your kid's mood. And nowadays with social media and a lot of expectations and stress being put on kids and they can compare themselves all over the internet uh, to different people, Uh, celebrities, not only their friends um, and not only like incredibly famous celebrities, but, you know, people with fitness Instagrams and, um, you know, just Instagram famous, basically all these people who think that they are spreading health advice and you know, advocating for, I don't really know what, uh, wellness, I guess, are actually causing big problems in our teenage girls, especially. So, you know, look out for teenagers and the young people in your life. 
And remember that suicide, you know, is a big problem. It's something we need to, you know, keep an eye out for and not only get stuck and focused on um, eating disorders. So it's my news item for today. If you have any suggestions, you are also welcome to send them in. So thanks to David for this one. And now I'll move on to some of the listener questions that we had. So I had a couple questions about intuitive eating and haze, health at every size. And those are two things that I've definitely discussed on the podcast uh, with guests. And it's very possible I've just said them kind of in passing. When you work with something, it becomes so second nature that you forget to explain it. So just to go back to make sure all new listeners and old listeners were on the same page, intuitive eating as defined by Evelyn Tribble and Elise Raish, I think I always say her name wrong, um, who wrote the original book, Intuitive Eating, define it as like satisfaction being the focal part of eating. So it's not like the number of calories you ate or that you finished the meal, it's that you feel satisfied. And instead of exercising for the point of burning calories, you're exercising for the sake of feeling good. And in doing those two things, so eating for satisfaction and exercising to feel good, you reject the diet mentality. And you use nutrition info without judgment. So you can recognize like, okay, my muffin has X amount of calories and my banana has, you know, Y amount of calories, but not saying one is better than the other. And respecting your body, no matter what shape or size or weight it is, and not putting a good, bad label on it. So intuitive eating really is about removing those good, bad labels, eating so our body feels good, and exercising so our body feels good. Haze is probably less familiar to a lot of you, but Haze Health at Every Size is when you look at health as a result of behaviors that are independent of body weight. So instead of saying, oh, you weigh this much, this means you are healthy or not healthy, it's just looking at you know, your behaviors that are independent of your weight. So are you smoking? Are you running? Are you uh, eating vegetables or or what have you. And uh, Hayes really puts the pressure on practitioners to think about, are we favoring being thin and discriminating against patients who are overweight and obese? Do we automatically look at someone who is overweight or obese or just in a larger body, as uh, a lot of Hayes practitioners refer to individuals that the regular health community would refer to as overweight or obese Do we look at those patients and see only their fat or do we look at them and see a person who may have some other health condition that's totally unrelated to the size that they are? And are we looking at that person and thinking, do we provide chairs that they can sit in? Do we have, you know, scales that are appropriate? Do we have you know, doorways that are appropriate, thinking about all the parts of our office and all of the parts of our practice um, that are discriminatory potentially against someone in a larger body. And instead of, you know, focusing on their body size and their weight, making sure we treat them just as we would treat any other patient. This week, I actually brought it up with one of my patients and said, I'm not going to give you anything different than I would give a patient in a different body size. I'm not going to say that, you know, exercise is bad for you and good for them. You know, exercise, if it makes us feel good, is good for all of us. And that's sort of the message is like, we're not going to give something based purely on body size or weight. So I know Beth Rosen last week did a really good job of kind of bringing in that terminology of larger bodies and and terminology that Hayes practitioners use instead of words like obese and overweight. She also mentioned a thin privilege, which I did not explain anymore in the intro or put in the notes. And so I just wanted to explain that thin privilege is very related to Hayes. It's when people who are thin are granted certain advantages over people who are not. So just what I was talking about. If you go to the doctor's office and there are no chairs that you can fit in because of the armrests, well, that's a privilege that only a thin person has that they can sit and you can't sit. Um, So thinking about that when you're designing an office for anything but health, you know, 
offices especially, it should be welcoming, inviting, accessible. If healthcare is not accessible, then how do you expect someone in that larger body to, you know, get healthcare and take care of themselves? So hopefully you learned something um, and that we're all caught up on the same terminology. Today on the podcast, we're going in a little different direction. I don't have a dietitian on. I don't have a runner. I have a psychologist who actually lives in New Haven as well. Her name is Lori Grunbaum, and I am very sorry, Lori, if I pronounced that wrong. I'm trying. Um, She's a clinical psychologist in New Haven who specializes in eating disorders. She also works a little bit with Yale School of Medicine and often has some of their um, interns or residents shadow her. She has a lot to say about the psychology behind eating disorders and other co-occurring conditions. And I think all of us uh, will certainly learn a lot from what she has to say. I know I learned a whole bunch instead of just thinking about this person and their food, thinking about, you know, what's behind all of this um, behavior. So here we go. All right. So I'm here today with Lori. Um, It's so great to have you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Delighted to be here. (laughs) Yeah, awesome. So Lori's a clinical psychologist, correct? Yes. Yeah, and um, you work with a variety of different illnesses, but eating disorders is one of them? Yes, eating disorders is an interest and specialty of mine. Okay, great. So how did you first get interested in psychology? Well, pretty much like every mental health professional, there are some, you know, issues, family issues, dysfunctional family things that lead someone to kind of want to work it out. As I say to my patients, knowledge is power. So the more you know, you know, the more power you have, even though it may be difficult along the way. But certainly that seems to, you know, be more preferable. So, you know, that led me to want to understand human behavior and really connect the dots. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like most people who are a dietitian, in my experience, had some food issue growing up. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. How did you first start working with eating disorders? Well, it was kind of serendipitous. I had a nutritionist contact me sort of randomly and said, would you like to take this case? And I said, well, I, I would and I'm interested, but I need to learn because I wasn't experienced with eating disorders. So yeah. that was my first patient. And when I was started that? to it was probably in about 1992 or something like that. (laughs) And I remember that person very well. And, um, you know, I started to read and learn and go to conferences. And um, it just took off from there. And I really became very, very interested and also had known people in my past that before people really understood eating disorders or even what they were, that there were people in my past who had had them, good friends, and, and we just kind of dismissed it. It was like, oh, my friend Randy's just going to go throw up. You know, yeah. like, oh, okay. You know, and now <laughs> sort of <laughs> needing to, like, see this as a, the clinical entity it was. Yeah. So when do you think that shift kind of happened? Like, it was more normalized, and now you're like, oh, people are recognizing that it's a problem. I would say maybe more the late 80s and early 90s, um, maybe before that, but I just wasn't that aware of it. It wasn't like we talked about it in my clinical psych grad program. Yeah, which Nobody is crazy. Nobody mentioned it. So, and even though I had already had this experience at college, probably, you know, 10 or 12 years before that. And so it was very strange that it really yeah. wasn't known or maybe it was known in circles that just weren't teaching about it. Right, yeah. Even in dietetics programs today and psychology programs today, it's like a small topic. It's not a major um, discussion at all. Or at med schools. Yeah. You know, they really need to bring it into medical training. And you work more. at Yale Medical School as well? I do I do supervision for the trainees there, psychology oh, okay. trainees. So it's not at all connected to their actual training um, in their programs or the medical school training. But it's after they finish their programs and need to do a clinical internship. But they would mostly not see eating disorder patients right. at those sites. Yeah. Okay. So many people that I have spoken to or like who parents who contact me are always saying like, is the eating disorder just because my kid doesn't want to eat or they think that it's not like it's all about food. But if you were to explain from your perspective what an eating disorder is, what would you say? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's a huge problem that the lay public really isn't educated about what this is all about. And even patients that come to me don't really understand this when they first come because the eating disorder 
Ed, so to speak, yeah, will I tell like to them. Call him Ed. Yeah, <laughs> will tell them that the problem is their body and their weight and and fear foods and all of that. When that's a symptom of the problem, that becomes a huge problem in and of itself. But it's not the problem or the underlying problem, right? And I tell my patients these are disorders of deprivation right and not just of food itself at all although that is symbolic and there is food deprivation with food restriction right. however it's really about emotional deprivation and then that leads to more deprivation in one's life as a de- eating disorder develops the person will be not participating in their life as much, not enjoying, not having pleasure, and kind of inhibiting themselves in all sorts of ways. And as they become more internally preoccupied with food, weight, and body, and with the symptoms. So you're saying it's a, a disorder of deprivation. Yes. What and, are some like other examples? Um, well, you know, often when people, and this is sort of interesting because people think of trauma as an event, right? Right. When actually everyone who comes through my door has developmental trauma and certainly my eating disorder patients, they may have had other traumas along the way like loss or something specific, but they all have in common mostly that their families didn't speak the language of feelings. Right. And so they weren't helped to cope. They weren't allowed to speak and have their voice. They were silenced even not intentionally, you know, at all. It's just because of parents also not having skills and yeah. not inviting the young, the child and then the young person to talk about whatever is bothering them and especially with regard to the parents themselves, like you hurt my feelings or I'm angry at you and really making that acceptable and okay. So then when you get to adolescence and early adulthood, your, your voice is silenced, you're shut down, you've held everything inside and... You know, and so it bursts out in these symptoms. Yeah. You know, so all you need is that alone, and you're going to have troubles, and you're ripe for an eating disorder, as well as many other, you know, uh, symptoms, anxiety, depression, substance abuse, you know, it can go any way you can, you know, it's, you don't decide which symptom you're going to develop. (laughs) It's not really a choice that you made. Exactly. Um, So you're saying a lot of times you'll see in the parents or the family that there wasn't a lot of discussion of emotions or feelings. Yes. And especially that understanding, validating, you know, um, making feelings acceptable. And again, especially that the parent can tolerate that they've disappointed the child or hurt their feelings and they can own it and apologize. And then you can, it can dissipate. If that doesn't happen... It goes in the well yeah. <laughs> of things held inside. But this is even unknowingly. The child doesn't know this. The parent doesn't know this. Yeah. It's just completely unspoken and going on out of anyone's awareness. Do parents, do you speak with parents often or caregivers? Yes. yes. Yeah. And well, you know, I also, I speak with parents when I see an adolescent. Right. right? I, I don't really see young children very much, but I, with college students. And yeah. college students, I I speak with college students' parents only sparingly and only if the student really wants me to and gives permission because of right. full confidentiality. But sometimes the student wants me to because they want their parent to understand better and also understand right. better how to respond to them. Yeah. Right? And so because many parents will focus on the food, weight, and body yeah. or just I need to help you eat or no because – by the time they're that age, everyone needs to take control of their own yeah. self-care and nurturance in their body, and that's part of the re- recovery work. And so the parent needs to just be supportive of that. And also, if they're going to ask anything, they're just going to need to say, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Yeah. Not like, what are you doing with regard to your symptoms, right? So what advice would you give to like a parent or like a husband or wife or someone on how to, how to help someone? Because it's really confusing, you know, if you're daughter is suddenly not eating anymore you you don't know what to do yeah no well that's true look with an adolescent there's more involvement by the parent and more intervention and they may need to be supervised I mean obviously sometimes people need to go to residential then but yeah they're really not eating you can't let the adolescent go into such a danger zone that they really you know or it's it's so uh medically hurtful and destructive Mm -hmm. but but you also have to balance that because they still like you know they're still becoming their own person and separating and they don't want all that intrusiveness in one way, but then they're pulling for that intrusiveness because they're saying, look, there's a problem here. Yeah. And that's part of the reason they've developed this disorder to say there's a problem, but then they balk 
when the parent, you know, is, is overly intrusive, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's very complicated and it's yeah. a fine balance of how a parent of an adolescent has to work with this, but be overall, any parent just be very supportive, very supportive of recovery. Also, again, validating feelings, understanding, you know, really responding that I'm here for you. So, but not with a, with criticism or something controlling, you know, but you know, the, the young, early young adults, say a student, you know, sometimes a student has to be told you're not healthy enough to stay at school. Yeah. My personal feeling is if I can, I try to get students to be able to stay yeah. and work within the confines of college. Because it's such a life-altering you right, know, move to right. go back home. Like it's better if they can cope and they can get through it and start to get better. Sometimes they can't. Sometimes they have to take a leave and come back. But so you have to make that call. But mm-hmm. I have a lot of students who really manage to make it through. So yeah. that's, you know, that feels like the better alternative if it's possible. But yeah. again, with food restriction, it can go downhill quickly and the person can be in danger versus bulimia and binge eating or other disorders um, they're they're very difficult to treat in one way, but but they're not in danger in the same way. Yeah, yeah, it's not going to be like a sudden, yes, not you know. life threatening in that way for the most part. And what about adults? So if if an adult has an eating disorder, how do you talk to their caregivers, or what advice would you give? Same thing, really. You know, to not be intrusive but be interested and and sort of inviting i'm here to talk if you want me to and also that i'm supporting your recovery completely i um support you not feeling ashamed or embarrassed you know like this is a problem like every other and really giving that kind of unconditional love and support okay so just more more of like a person to lean on for yes, them. Yes, but just... Than like taking control. Right, no. It, it, obviously, no one else as an adult, especially, you know, no one else can take control. That person yeah. has to want to get well. And the thing about eating disorders, there's a tremendous amount of ambivalence initially. Even if the person comes to treatment, okay, they're saying I want to get well yeah. in one way, but the process to get to really wanting to get well fully and also being able to do what it takes is a long one and, and it's an hard. arduous it's one. It's really hard. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it really is. Sometimes, you know, I have people have to build, build a foundation of a year or more to really even start to do any of the real steps in terms of intervening in their symptoms. So but that do doesn't mean yeah. nothing's happening. <laughs> right, other, of course. Other than that in that first year. How do you, from a psychological standpoint as the psychologist in the team taking care of them, how do you start treating an eating disorder or working with a patient? Okay. Well, I know I, it's very individual. Yeah. It's very, <laughs> but there is, you know, I get their history. So right. I, get, I try to get an understanding of where, where their emotional deprivation comes from and also try to start educating them about the language of feelings and their feeling life. And that the, if they, you know, if they don't speak the language of feelings yet, and they usually don't, that it's like learning a foreign language. Yeah. And it's really easy when you're a kid and it's from day one, but it's really hard as an adult, but you can do it. Yeah. But can it's you just give gonna, us a little crash course? Like what, what's the, the language, language of feelings? feelings. Well, the short version. just in terms of speaking like what you feel instead of like set of behaviors right uh, engaging in behaviors that it's okay to be angry and it's okay to speak or okay let's say it's like standing up for yourself with yeah. someone and being assertive and having your voice because your voice has been silenced like you hurt my feelings when you said x or y you know and it made me feel this way or i felt abandoned when you or dis or you, i felt as if you dismissed my feelings you know when you said such and such you know so right. you know and people maybe unintended but people often say things that feel dismissive yeah like don't be so upset <laughs> oh yeah or calm down <laughs> or you know no we want to f- be able to say no i'm feeling this i yeah. don't need to calm down <laughs> or i'm right. not i'm not you know i'm not necessarily at a high pitch i'm just expressing emotions yeah right? i but think people, like, other people get uncomfortable it's so common i think my most my most common response when i'm like upset and uh 
you know, kind of yelling, but not really yelling right, just at someone. Have a lot of affect, right? Yeah. Uh, and they're like, you know, calm down. I'm like, I, I'm angry right now. Like, yeah. what do you want me to say? Yeah. yeah. And it's okay to, yeah. like, that's where, I mean, anger is such a huge culprit in terms mm-hmm. of eating disorders and other oh, symptomatology, yeah. especially like anxiety and depression, but substance abuse too. And so people often when they don't have access to their anger and women in particular hold mm-hmm. it inside that much more. And I don't say think, say that men don't either. Men just become more outwardly explosive and when women tend to hold it inside more. There are always exceptions to the rule. Right. But, you know, women often will keep it inside and then it goes directly into low self-esteem thoughts, depressive thoughts, anxiety thoughts, eating disorder thoughts and behaviors. So the more that one can have access to their healthy anger and feel like it's valid, you know, and also having feelings isn't the same as taking actions, right? So, you know, just because you're angry doesn't mean you're going to go yell and scream at someone. You may have to think about (laughs) what you're going to do about it or just vent it to someone like your therapist or your friend who can give you support and validate you like you have a right to feel this way, right? And that in and of itself feels so much better. Right. I think that validation is so key. Like people are looking to know that, you know, them being upset is not, you know, a problem or not their right. fault. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that that's normal and inevitable. We're all human beings and we have the full range of emotions. Yeah. You know. And I've seen a lot of patients and even like myself, you know, experienced where someone tells you, you know, you shouldn't be sad or like you shouldn't feel sadness. Right. There's uh, no shouldn't And then feel. years later, you know, they're crying to me and I'm like, this this should have been addressed yes. long before. Exactly. Yeah. There is no shouldn't when it comes to feelings. Your feelings are your feelings, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> we have that. There's no shouldn't feel. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about the difference between children and adults. Yes. So clearly children, you know, have someone who's in charge sort yes. of of them yes. versus adults. But what about men and women? You sort of hinted at it, but how do you start treating them differently or what do you see? I think it's similar. I I really do. You know, men aren't treatment seekers across the board. So there are less men in people's clinical practices than women. And less have eating disorders. Yes, and less have eating disorders, although they exist and they may be more hidden. And I've never seen a male anorexic. I've only seen um, bulimics and binge eaters. There's actually a lot of gay men who have anorexia yes Yes. i've seen yes i mean i actually did see one gay man who was had been anorexic by but but by the time i saw him he was bulimic so i never saw him when he was anorexic but so i've just seen more of that you Mm -hmm. know in men but just still not a lot and i haven't seen a man in a while really reach out for treatment yeah and why do you think that's the case i just think because men are not treatment seekers in general like we still in 2019 to a certain extent men are still socialized to feel like it's a weakness and mm-hmm. that they need to do it themselves and that they shouldn't reach out for help and so that's a problem so do men tend to come in at like a a worse position because they're like finally reached this point that they're going to get treatment or not really no not really I mean I think maybe some men who have depression yeah. yes with you know with an eating disorder I think it's everyone sort of like I'm tired of this and I do <laughs> yeah. I finally want to do something about it I'm tired of living like this yeah and a Just ball like and chain about to my it all eating disorder yes exactly I I've heard a couple different statistics quoted at me depending on who is talking but do you get a sense from your patients like how like what percent of their thoughts are about like food or their body or not eating or when they're in the throes of an eating disorder and really have just come to treatment I would say it's 24 7 yeah it's it's so huge it's yeah. incredible and I always say you know I mean your listeners can't see this but if you picture like just a pad of paper right right what I do is draw for people a little square in the corner and I say this this is what food, weight, and body should occupy in your life. If the p- rest of the page is your life. Yeah. And the rest of the page like should your be thoughts. your life, right? Yeah. And But when it's an eating disorder, it's reversed. Like your life is that little square in the corner and the rest of the page is eating disorder thoughts right. and behaviors. And it's just consuming them and it's leading them to withdraw, retreat, isolate, um, not participate, feel like they have to hide out, feel like they either can't show their body or they can't go out to a restaurant because people will be watching them eat. Yeah. And or they can't eat certain foods because they're fear foods and they're going to gain weight or they can't drink alcohol because alcohol has calories and it's just relentless. Yeah. I know. So 
the reason I ask is because the more times I can get people to hear that, like maybe it will sink in, like how consumed people are with an eating disorder are about these thoughts. Because uh, I've, you know, spoken about it to friends and they'll be like, that's ridiculous. Like nobody it's, could spend that much time thinking about it. They can. They yeah. totally can. It's all consuming. And that is the nature of the suffering. The nature yeah. of this beast is the suffering and also kind of making the abnormal your normal mm -hmm. that they start to have that be their normal and they don't even realize anymore what's normal i know because they're in this world eating disorder world yeah and it's just so torturous and really so depriving so the emotional yeah. deprivation leads Still to this kind on. of deprivation right and yeah. so as someone recovers they start to claim more of their life back yeah and face fears and do more activities and say oh wow i really enjoyed that yeah and wow but at the same time that's a scary place because when they start to experience some joy or pleasure or feel good about something sometimes the psyche wants to bring it back to the status it's quo almost comforting Right, it's At familiar, point, right? It's familiar, it's comforting in its familiarity and it's scary to feel good because the person fears it's gonna be taken away. So on s some unconscious level, the brain seeks to bring it back to the status quo. So no, this is how you're supposed to feel, you right. know, in this negative feeling state. And so the psyche will sabotage the good sometimes and bring the person back to that and make it flood in. So when the person starts to understand that, they can sort of start to claim the positive, right? Like mm -hmm. kind of actually consciously say, I'm allowed to feel good. Yeah, like I'm going to hold on feeling. to this. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that so. kind of explains relapses a little bit. Yes. And how they can happen. Yes. Even when all your supporters and friends think you're at a high and they're like, how did that person relapse? That's when you're the most vulnerable. That's yeah. what I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you're, you're not thinking about, you know, your strategies and your tactics and coping mechanisms because you feel good. No. Yeah. No, not at all. So you mentioned depression and anxiety. Yes. Um, which are co-occurring often yes. with eating disorders? Yes. Because well, eating disorders are technically an anxiety disorder. Okay. You know, except just in that realm. Right. And very similar to OCD, except it's the obsession is food, weight, and body. Right. And um, and depression is always a backdrop. Yeah. You know, depressive feelings because the person always has low self-esteem or very unstable self-esteem. And so... Um, depression is just a part of that depressive kinds of feelings even if the person doesn't actually have a clinical depression although people can have clinical depressions along the way as yeah. part of it and so then then you might use medication for that you know right just as an adjunct so how like what percentage of your eating disorder patients like have a co-occurring condition i would say really like a hundred percent yeah <laughs> yeah I, I really would because you can't have an eating disorder and not have depression and anxiety and the anxiety drives the eating disorder. And in fact, when people start to get well, they'll say I'm more anxious overtly because they were using the behaviors before oh, a yeah. coping mechanism. Oh, yeah. Which, yeah. by the way, I didn't talk about really <laughs> that the eating disorder is really develops as a coping mechanism, even though it's not an effective one. But yeah. it's a way of fleeing and avoiding one's feeling life and facing things. So because you're in eating disorder land and right. you're not in the real world, you're not facing the real issues that are bothering you. Yeah, I wasn't. I, full disclosure, I had an eating disorder as a teenager, like a lot of dietitians who work yes. with eating disorders. And I was never more productive than when I had my eating disorder because I wasn't thinking about all of these like other That's things. Right. That's and right. And then as soon as like I stopped, I had bulimia, as soon as I stopped throwing up, it was like everything was incredibly stressful yes. and like nightmares and all kinds of weirdness that I was like, wait, I thought I was supposed to be better. Right. right? But you were, you know what? Yeah. That was a higher level symptom. Right. Than the eating disorder. So nightmares, you higher had, level. But you had, well, <laughs> the more anxiety because it was yeah. masking all that anxiety. Yeah. So right. unfortunately you have to move through that too and learn how to manage that in order to really fully recover. And I think that's super important for parents to understand yes. because I know my parents were confused. Like, yes. I thought, you know, you were supposed to be getting better and now you seem to be getting worse with yes. these other symptoms. It seems like it's worse, but it really isn't. But it's just 
it's just going to be inevitable that that's going to happen. So most of your patients, you see that, you know, yes. increase. Yes, because they've been masking it with just being an eating disorder land as the coping mechanism for all of that. Yeah. I just am going to self-medicate either with the addiction to food restriction or or the binge eating or the, the cycle of binging and purging. So do you see, because you said um, medicate, self-medicate, do you see substance abuse co-occurring with eating disorders a lot not as much because in a way even though with food restriction food isn't the self-medication in the same way although the person's obsession with food yeah is is like an addiction right because they want the food so badly because they're right. so deprived but they're resisting it and denying themselves but right. with you know with the others um it literally is the drug of choice you know okay yeah, because I, I think, I don't know if it was my doctor or a doctor I've worked with with patients who told me that bulimia is very connected with substance abuse or at least in the same families. I don't know if you've seen that at all. I have some. You know, sometimes people with bulimia will also use alcohol. Okay. Um, or maybe like alcoholics like, in the same family. Yes, yes. That No, that's yeah. that, because a similar route right depression and anxiety yes and also avoidance right so avoidance and denial you know of one's feelings and issues and so you can just escape you know people escape through alcohol and numb themselves out and believe it or not people numb themselves out through food and even the cycle of binging and purging oh yeah for sure and so uh just to go back i've never had a psychologist on at all um, so I think it's important to talk a little about medications because as dietitians we don't really yes. work with medications too much except for you know what food issue could they cause um, so what kind of medications are e- people with eating disorders often on yeah and you know what I want to say about eating disorders and medication is mm-hmm. that it's not magical yeah <laughs> um, for some yeah. people it's not helpful at all for some people it can take the edge off of the obsessional thinking and actually help them work their recovery a little bit more. Or if they're pretty depressed and depression is really interfering with recovery, you can more, you know, actively and aggressively treat the depression and, you know, also have them be able to have more energy and mental capacity to work on their recovery. Um, So, and that does, you know, that is useful, but it's always an adjunct. It's not going to take the eating disorder away. Right. There's no magic pill. No, no, there really (laughs) isn't. It's mostly SSRIs of various kinds or the, you know, some in the other class. And there are some new ones now that I'm actually not as familiar with because not a lot of my patients have been on them yet. Right. You you see them advertised on TV and I don't know if they really work. So similar meds to depression that most of us are used to hearing. And, And it also, you know, because... The SSRI antidepressants also are Mm anti-anxiety. Again, it takes it can take the anxious edge off of the eating disorder uh, thoughts. Right. And so SSRIs have a little bit of a dulling effect often, right? Yeah. Well, sometimes not in a good way. Sometimes people complain that they feel too flat. Right. That's what I was wondering about with someone who hasn't been able to express their emotions and now is like being dulled. Like how do you... It's complicated. But sometimes maybe it's just a temporary thing to try to... Um, if they're in so the throes of the eating disorder and the, and so it's gonna knock it so out. much <laughs> obsessing that you could yeah. kind of just take that down a few notches and then maybe eventually, you know, they can go off. But not everybody gets flat. Some people yeah. really do fine and also just have more mental space to work on expressing their feelings because they're not so overwhelmed, you know. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So for you in your, you know, many years of working with eating disorders, what has been like the most misunderstood concept about eating disorders that you see among other practitioners? That's a good question. Um, I don't, because I was thinking you were going to ask about the general I'm going to ask you about them next. (laughs) Yeah, with other practitioners, I just don't think they have the skills. And and sometimes they have the sense to say, I can't, I'm helping you with other things, but I really can't treat this aspect and I know you need it. Or the person is saying that to them. And so I need to send you to someone who really knows how to work with this because yeah. you need to treat the symptoms and the underlying issues. You can't just treat one or the other. And so right. frequently people who are excellent clinicians are really good at the actual emotional issues and the underlying issues and pain and wounds and trauma. Right. 
but they don't know how to work with the actual symptomatology and to help people learn how to intervene in that part and respond to that part because they have to be able to learn how to do that as well. And can you explain like what that part is a little more? (laughs) So for example, you know, if the eating disorder is telling you, um, I can't go out to dinner because I'm going to, you know, have such and such food and people are going to be watching me. You know, it's about having the person be able to start to learn how to stand up for themselves internally. Like we understand, we talked about that earlier, um, how to set boundaries with people externally to stand up for oneself, to have your voice, to say no, to set boundaries. Well, it's learning how to set those same boundaries and stand up for yourself internally to Ed. To Ed. And that's why Ed is a good way. But sometimes I just call it symptom thoughts or eating disorder thoughts. But Ed is a nice way if it works for any individual person to say that you're standing up to Ed because you are not your eating disorder. That is Ed and you are you and you have to learn how to separate from Ed and break up with Ed. Yeah, it really is a breakup. Like you're so used to having those thoughts. Exactly. When you can recognize like, those thoughts are not my thoughts, then you're one step closer. Exactly. So you can say, Ed, you're telling me I can't go out to eat. But guess what? You're wrong. I can go out to eat. I want to enjoy myself with my friends. And nobody's going to care what I'm eating. And I can have a little alcohol and be fine. And it doesn't matter. I give myself permission. I'm going to enjoy myself. Of course, that's farther along, I would say, in recovery to be able to do that. But that would be the type of things we start to work on little by little. People aren't often ready to do it for a while, but we have to just build that foundation of that's what we're working at. Mm -hmm. And often people will in their lives set external boundaries and stand up for themselves externally before internally. Right. It's much harder to do the internal. Yeah. Which is sort of... Because we're our own biggest critic, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And like we're afraid of, of that voice internally and we're giving it power and credence and... We have to disempower it. Yeah. So you, you've you worked with a lot of anorexic patients more? Both. Or a no, mix? I would say mixed. So mixed. with the bulimic or binge eating patients, do you ever get the sense that they feel like they're not worthy of the eating disorder title? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But even anorexics will say it oh, sometimes. Really? Okay. Oh, yes. Because yeah. they're in such denial sometimes yeah, that they think, oh, well, I'm still really at a fine weight. And so yeah. even when they're really not, you know, and their yeah. brain is a little more not functioning because the lower weight you get, the less your brain functions well. And so it, it really makes the eating disorder thoughts have more power and it almost can get when you get really low weight to a, like a oh, delusional yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. point, like out of reality. You know, so where an 80 pound person still thinks they're fat, but right. So, um, tell me the question, just repeat yeah. the question no, again. No, it's okay. So, just in my oh, experience yes, working with people, when yes. a lot of times, uh, someone with binge eating or bulimia, especially, I see it, it's like they don't think they're good enough at their eating disorder, they're not worthy yes. of this like eating disorder. Well, title. yeah, people often think that anorexics are better at their yeah. eating disorder, and that they're it's just, such a weird thing to say, like, I know, better at the I know. Eating it's, disorder. It's, it's really it's unfortunate yeah. that that's the way the mind goes because, oh, wow, because again, part of anorexia is feeling morally superior like I don't need food like everybody right. else I'm better than everybody else so then the bulimics and binge eaters why project that onto them to say you know you are superior to me because yeah. you can resist food and I can't yeah and I always say it's good that you can't and you don't want you to and that actually yeah. that makes you you know at least you're One still eating you know yeah. you may be not self-regulated and you know um using food as a coping mechanism using the cycle that way but you can get a handle on this but they often feel like I'm not worthy also of like especially if they're a normal weight which many times they are yeah like because one can't see it and you can see when someone's too thin and see that they have an eating disorder they think I'm I don't even deserve to be here because look, there's nothing wrong with me. You can't even see it. Yeah. And you're like, well, if I could, you know, feel yeah. your acid reflux or whatever yeah. is going on. Yeah. <laughs> and, and those thoughts in your head that no one can see, but yeah. they're going on and making you suffer. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. It's good to hear other practitioners have yes. heard that over and totally. over again. Over and over. So now covered with the practitioners don't understand, but what about the general public? Um, the general public, again, it's kind of what you said in the beginning, like, oh, you're just too thin, eat, or 
if you're engaging in a cycle of binging or binging and purging, just stop. Why don't you just stop when mm-hmm. it doesn't work that way? I yeah. mean, and, and they mostly don't say that about substance abusers. They get that it's really, really hard. Well, it's the same yeah. thing. Yeah. You can't just stop. And it's like that Nike commercial, just do it. You can't. Yeah. You know, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and again, it's sort of, you know, um, perpetuates some myth of like that it's a weakness. You just can't, you know, like, oh, you know, you can't get a handle on this because you're weak. No, it's because yeah. it's really a disorder and it controls you. And you have to take back your control over time. And how how do you get someone who's never had like a family member or a friend or been a practitioner to understand, you know, the the importance of helping people with an eating disorder and like not saying things that are triggering to those with eating disorders? It's education. There needs to be more education available out there and resources for people because people do say very hurtful, wounding things. Oh, yeah. You know. But out of ignorance, you know, and so and then people come back and say, I just can't believe I was in this situation. A person said this or that. And, you know, or even, again, family members so critical or saying that they're fat or, you know, just things like that that are just so hurtful, you know, sometimes when they don't know. But even when they know, you know, they'll say those things. Yeah. So I think it's really education. And helping people to understand that those are just hurtful things to people in general. So you just don't say them. They're just yeah. not they're just not helpful to anybody, let alone someone with an eating disorder. Yeah. It's funny too, because for me and I'm sure for you, like they just jump out like neon signs when someone says something that's just like, Whoa, I can't believe you would say that. You know, what if someone right. around here has an eating disorder or, you know, what if I have an eating disorder and you're just you know, using that slogan or, you know, commenting on, on that. Um, and it's, it's weird that people don't notice, but I guess, you know, if you haven't been exposed to it, you might not. You might not. And even somebody with really good intentions, like there was like a secretary at one of the Yale colleges who sent out an email about a class and said something like, oh, for all you with those extra pounds or something, it was like meant to be really, benign but yeah you know the people that i see you know said but we talked about it and, and they're like wrote the type to her ones you know reading the email to begin right with. exactly yeah. <laughs> but you know someone that i had in recovery wrote to her and kind of explained to her and she was so mortified and so sorry and yeah. said thank you for making me aware so that was like a good example That's, of educating yeah. someone who really wasn't at all <clears throat> like malintentioned but just said something out of ignorance yeah. you know and it's sort of in our so in our culture like because everyone oh, about obesity, right? and, yeah like yeah. oh go to that exercise class you know lose those extra pounds you know so yeah i can think of like two examples that were pretty alarming to me because one, you know, the Rudd Center used to yes. be at UConn. Yeah. I'm here uh, now, and it's now at it's UConn. UConn yeah. yeah. So I did some research for them oh, while wow. I was an undergrad and you know, it's all obesity focused, which is really not my focus at all anymore. Cause I don't even really use that word too much, but um, you know, there was a group in my class who did a project. How, how do we get people to make a healthier choice, quote unquote, in the dining hall? And they put up these signs that were, about you know this amount of pasta equals 30 minutes of exercise and I nearly like fainted when they were like proposing their project and the professor even though you know she's worked in psychology and nutrition and whatever didn't even think about it because she's so in like the world of weight loss yes Um, oh my goodness and yeah uh, several girls on the club running team which I you know was associated with reported it as you know this is really triggering and a problem we have so many students who barely you know keep themselves together if you're gonna be putting here this sign saying if you eat this mac and cheese you better run for another 30 minutes oh I mean, my god it's so damaging yeah oh my god it's it's a terrible i just don't know how it got thing. through like all the review but boards and everything again it's 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 a lack of awareness yeah. and ignorance oh my goodness um it's reminding me that an adolescent patient of mine came in the other day and said, I am so tired of the weight loss and wellness culture. Me too. And uh, <laughs> and, and she even said, and diet weight loss diet and culture. wellness culture. Yeah. 
And like she was ranting almost the whole session about <laughs> it and, and giving all these examples. And she's really working her recovery and working yeah. on eating fear foods. I mean, really remarkable for such a young person. That's awesome. Um, but then it was so strange it's such a, a, a coincidence I came home and someone had just or it popped up on my phone an op-ed piece in the New York Times about the wellness culture and how yeah, people have been fed a bill of goods and so I direct anyone who wants to go ahead and read that article I can't remember the name of it now but I'll be, yeah, I'll be able to find it, it. it was, I think it was Wednesday's yeah. this past Wednesday's New York Times so that was not Wednesday Monday the 10th yeah it, was it is Monday, Wednesday mo- yeah it is Wednesday sorry <laughs> Monday the 10th and so it was an op-ed piece that day about wellness culture yeah and, it was really um, good and the, the other thing I realized we hadn't talked about was body shaming and just shame in general yeah it's a huge part of huge, eating disorders huge yeah. and how much shame people feel and carry whether it's about their bodies often that but also just hiding, like feeling like they have to keep a secret and feeling so ashamed of the whole thing. And often that shame is embedded in their family of origin issues, but it's just being, again, manifested through the eating disorder. And so a huge part of recovery is working on letting go of shame. Yeah. And a huge part of this project is being like, we don't have to pretend they don't exist, right? And we don't have to pretend like you don't have one if you have one. Um, Because I think that's... A huge problem. I know it's supposed to be, you know, helpful maybe for someone to be like, oh, not everyone has to know what you're going through. And not everyone does have to know. You don't have to tell everybody. But you also don't have to pretend that you're fine. Right. If you're not fine. Exactly. It really is a problem Mm -hmm. like any other, a struggle like any other. We all have struggles. We're all human beings. You know, what bonds us together are our human struggles that we all have. Yeah. So it's just... It's so relieving when people can just be open about it and like not feel shame and feel it's like, okay. I mean, no one has to ever also tell the details of the symptoms. It's just about (laughs) I'm struggling. I'm working on this, you know, and then you get to get support. Yeah. So we do have to wrap up. Okay. But it was so great having you on. I've learned a lot. Oh, Um, thank you so much. It was so great to be here and I would love to come back. Yeah, for sure. And I like to end everything on a positive, more positive note. And I think... I think a big problem for a lot of those with eating disorders is you mentioned fear foods, right? But there's foods we like too. So I like to ask every guest, what's your favorite food? What's my favorite yeah. food? <laughs> Ooh, I don't know. I have so many. I consider myself a foodie actually. Oh, I wow. love good food and I love making good food. I love going to restaurants with You're good food. You're in the food. right city for that. Yeah. Maven has a lot yeah. of good restaurants. And, you know, I would say one of my, f- this is funny it's going to sound funny but that i love bread and cheese no bread and cheese i are think like you're some third. of my favorite foods in the whole world yeah, right I think you're either the second or third guest to say bread is their favorite food so not alone <laughs> it's delicious yeah, yeah especially the smell yeah yeah uh, but thank you so much you're so welcome